Chapter 8, Part 1 of 2 of The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 8. The Fight for a State. Colonel Kenton and Harry avoided Louisville, which was now in the hands of northern sympathizers, and, traveling partly by rail and partly by stage, reached Frankfort early in May to attend the special session of the legislature called by Governor McGoffin. Although the skirmishing had taken place already along the edge of highland and lowland, the state still sought to maintain its position of neutrality. There was war within its borders, and yet no war. In feeling it was southern, and yet its judgment was with the Union. Thousands of ardent young men had drifted southward to join the armies forming there, and thousands of others, equally ardently, had turned northward to join forces that would oppose those below. Harry, young as he was, recognized that his own state would be more fiercely divided than any other by the great strife. But Federal and Confederate alike preserved the semblance of peace as they gathered at Frankfurt for the political struggle over the state. Colonel Kenton and his son took the train at a point about forty miles from the capital, and they found it crowded with public men going from Louisville to Frankfurt. It was the oldest railroad west of the Alleghanies, and among the first ever built. The coaches swung around curves, and dust and particles flew in at the windows but the speed was a relief after the crawling of the stage, and Harry stretched himself luxuriously on the plush seat. A tall man in civilian attire, holding himself very stiffly despite the swinging and swaying of the train, rose from his seat and came forward to greet Colonel Kenton. George, he said, his voice quivering slightly, you and I have fought together in many battles in Mexico and in the West but it is likely now that we shall fight other battles on this own soil of ours against each other. But, George, let us be friends always, and let us pledge it here and now. The words might have seemed a little dramatic elsewhere, but not so under the circumstances of time and place. Colonel Kenton's quick response came from the depths of a generous soul. John, he said, as their hands met in the grip of brothers of camp and field, you and I may be on opposing sides, but we can never be enemies. John, this is my son Harry. Harry, this is Major John Warren of Mason County and the regular army of the United States. He does not think as we do, but even at West Point he was a stubborn idiot. He and I were continually arguing, and he would never admit that he was always wrong. I never knew him to be right in anything except mathematics, and then he was never wrong. Major Warren smiled and sat down by his old comrade. "'You've a fine boy there, George,' he said, "'and I suppose he probably takes his opinions from his father, which is a great mistake. I think if I were to talk to him I could show him his, or rather your, error. Not by your system of mathematical reasoning, John. Your method is well enough for the building of a fortress or calculating the range of a gun, but it won't do for the actions of men. You allow nothing for feeling.' sentiment, association, propinquity, heredity, climate, and, and... Get a dictionary or a book of synonyms, George. Perhaps I should. I understand how we happen to differ, but I can't explain it well. 
Well, maybe it will all blow over. The worries of today are often the jokes of tomorrow. Major Warren shook his head. It may blow over, he said, but it will be a mighty wind and it will blow a long time and many things for which you and I care, George, will be blown away by it. When that great and terrible wind stops blowing, our country will be changed forever. Don't be so downcast, John. You are not dead yet, said Colonel Kenton, clasping his friend on the shoulder. You've often seen big clouds go by without either wind or rain. How about that attack on your house and you and your friends? The clouds had something in them then. Merely mountain outlaws taking advantage of unsettled conditions. Harry had listened closely, and he knew that his father was only giving voice to his hopes, not to his beliefs. But as they ceased to talk of the great question, his attention wandered to the country through which they were passing. Spring was now deep and green in Kentucky. They were running through a land of deep, rich soil, with an outcrop of white limestone showing here and there above the heavy green grass a peaceful county and prosperous. It seemed impossible that it should be torn by war between those who lived upon it. Then the train left the grasslands, cut through a narrow but rough range of hills, entered a gorge, and stopped at Frankfort, the little capital beside the deep and blue Kentucky. Frankfort had only a few thousand inhabitants, but Harry found there much of the feeling that he had seen in Nashville and Charleston, with an important difference. There it was all southern, or nearly so, but here north struggled with south on terms that certainly were not worse than equal. Although the place was crowded, he and his father were lucky enough to secure a room at the chief hotel, which was also the only one of any importance. The hotel itself swarmed with the opposing factions. Senator Culver and Judge Kendrick had a room together across the hall from theirs, and next to them four red-hot sympathizers with the Union slept on cots in one apartment. Further down the hall, Harvey Whitridge, a state senator, huge of stature, much whiskered, and the proud possessor of a voice that could be heard nearly a mile, occupied a room with Samuel Fowler, a tall, thin, quiet member of the lower house. The two were staunch unionists. Everybody knew everybody else in this dissevered gathering. Nearly everybody was kin by blood to everybody else. In a state affected little by immigration, families were more or less related. If there was to be a war... It would be, so far as they were concerned, a war of cousins against cousins. Colonel Kenton and Harry had scarcely bathed their faces and set their clothing to rights when there was a sharp knock at the door, and the colonel admitted Raymond Bertrand, the South Carolinian, dark of complexion, volatile, and wonderfully neat in apparel. He seemed at once to Harry to be a messenger from that Charleston which he had liked, and the life of which he had had a share. Bertrand shook hands with both with great enthusiasm, but his eyes sparkled when he spoke to Harry. "'And you were there when they fired on Sumter!' he exclaimed. "'And you had a part in it! What a glorious day! What a glorious deed! And I had to be here in your cold state, trying to make these descendants of stubborn Scotch and English see the right, and follow gladly in the path of our beautiful star, South Carolina!' "'How goes the cause there, Bertrand?' asked Colonel Kenton, breaking in on his prose epic. Bertrand shrugged his shoulders, and his face expressed discontent. Not well, he replied. Not as well as I had hoped. There is still something in the name of the Union that stirs the heart of the Kentuckians. They hesitate. I have worked, I have talked, I have used all the arguments of our illustrious President, Mr. Davis, and of all the other great men who have charge of Southern fortunes, and they still hesitate. Their blood is not hot enough. 
They do not have the vision. They lack the fire and splendor of the South Carolinians. Harry felt a little heat, but Colonel Kenton was not disturbed at all by the criticism. Perhaps you're right, Bertrand, he said thoughtfully. We Kentuckians have a reputation of being very quick on the trigger, but we are conservative in big things. This is going to be a great war, a mighty great war, and I suppose our people feel like taking a good long look and then another equally as long before they leap. Bertrand, hot-blooded and impatient, bit his lip. It will not do, it will not do, he exclaimed. We must have this state. Virginia has gone out. Kentucky is her daughter. Then why does not she do the same? You must give us time, Bertrand, said Colonel Kenton, still speaking slowly and thoughtfully. We are not starting upon a summer holiday, and I can understand how the people here feel. I'm going with my people, and I'm going to fire on the old flag, under which I have fought so often. But you needn't think it comes so easy. This thing of choosing between sections is the hardest task that was ever set for a man. Harry had never heard his father speak with more solemnity. Bertrand was silent, overawed by the older man. But to the boy the words were extremely impressive. His youthful temperament was sensitive to atmosphere. In Charleston he shared the fire, zeal, and enthusiasm of an impressionable people. They saw only one side, and for a while he saw only one side too. Here in Frankfurt the atmosphere was changed. They saw two sides, and he saw two sides with them. But you need not fear about us, Bertrand, continued Colonel Kenton. My heart is with the South, and so is my boys. I thought that Kentucky would go out of the Union without a fight. But since there is to be a struggle, we'll go through with it and win it. Don't be afraid. The state will be with you yet. They talked a little longer, and then Bertrand left. Harry politely held the door open for him, and as he went down the hall, he saw him pass Whitridge and Fowler. Contrary to the custom which still preserved the amenities, they did not speak. Bertrand gave them a look of defiance. It seemed to Harry that he wanted to speak, but he pressed his lips firmly together and, looking straight ahead of him, walked to the stairway, down which he disappeared. As Harry stood in the open doorway, Whitridge and Fowler approached. "'Can we come in?' Whitridge asked. "'Yes, Harvey,' said Colonel Kenton over the boy's shoulder. "'Both of you are welcome here at any time.' The two men entered, and Harry gave them chairs. Whitridge creaked beneath him with his mighty weight. "'George,' said the senator pointedly without animosity. You and I have known each other a good many years. We are eighth or tenth cousins, which counts for something in this state. Now you have come here to Frankfurt to pull Kentucky out of the Union, and I've come to pull it so hard against you that you can't. You know it and I know it. All square and above board, but why do you bring here that South Carolina Frenchman to meddle in the affairs of the good old state of Kentucky? Is it any business of his or of any other people down there? Can't we decide it ourselves? We're a big family here in Kentucky, and we oughtn't to bring strangers into the family council even if we do have a disagreement. Besides, he represents the Knights of the Golden Circle, and what they're planning is plumb foolishness. Even if you are bound to go out and split up the Union, I think you wouldn't have anything to do with the wholesale grabbing of Spanish-speaking territories to the southward. There's a lot in what you say, Harvey, replied Colonel Kenton, speaking with the utmost good humor. But I didn't bring Bertrand here. He came of his own accord. Besides, while I'm strong for the South, I think his Knights of the Golden Circle business is bad, just as you do. I'm glad you've got that much sense left, George, said Whitridge. You army men never do know much about politics. It's easy to pull the wool over your eyes. Have you and Fowler come here for that purpose? asked the Colonel, smiling. 
It was the preliminary to a long argument carried on without temper. Harry listened attentively, but as soon as it was over and Whitridge and Fowler had gone, he tumbled into his bed and went to sleep. He rose up early the next morning, before his father, in fact, as he was eager to see more of Frankfurt, ate a solid breakfast almost alone, and went into the streets, where the first person he met was his own cousin and schoolmate, Dick Mason. The two boys started, looked first at each other with hostile glances, then changed the next instant to looks of pleasure and welcome, and then shook hands with power and heartiness. They could not be enemies. They were boys, together again. "'Why, Dick!' exclaimed Harry. "'I thought you'd gone east to save the Union.' "'So I have,' replied Dick Mason. "'But not as far east as you thought. "'We've got a big camp down in Garrett County, "'where the forces of the Kentuckians who favor the Union are gathering. "'General Nelson commands us. "'I suppose you've heard that you rebels are gathering "'on the other side of Frankfort and Owen County under Humphrey Marshall.' "'Yes, Yank, I've heard it,' replied Harry. "'Now what are you doing in Frankfort? "'What business have you got here?' "'Since you asked me a plain question, I'll give you a plain answer,' replied Dick. "'I'm here to escort you rebels.' You don't think you can run away with a state like this, do you? I don't know yet, replied Harry, but we're going to try. Say, Dick, let's not talk about such things any more for a while. I want to see the town. We can take a look at it together. The plan suits me, said Dick promptly. Come on. I've been here two days, and I guess I can be guide. We'll take in the capital first, said Harry. Dick led the way, and Harry approached with awe and some curiosity the old building which was famous to him. Erected far back when the state was in its infancy, it still served well its purpose. He and Dick walked together upon the lawns among the trees, but as soon as the doors were open, they went inside and entered with respect the room in which the great men of their state, the Clays, the Marshalls, the Breckenridges, the Crittendons, the Hardens, and so many others had begun their careers. They were great men not to Kentucky alone, but to the nation as well and the hearts of the two boys throbbed with pride. They sat down in two of the desks where the members were to meet the next day and fight over the question whether Kentucky was northern or southern. It was very early. Besides themselves, there was nobody about but the caretaker. They were sitting in the house, and the room was still warmed in winter by great stoves. But they were not needed now, as the windows were open, and the fresh breeze of the grass-scented May morning blew in and tumbled the hair of the two youths of the same blood who sat side by side, close friends of their school days again, but who would soon be facing each other across red fields. The wind which blew so pleasantly on Harry's forehead reminded him of that other wind which had blown so often upon his face at Charleston, but it was not heavy and languorous here. It did not have the lazy perfumes of the breeze that floated up from the warm shores of the gulf. It was sharp and penetrating. It whipped the blood like a torch of frost. It stirred to action. His cousin's emotions were evidently much like his own. Harry, said Dick, I never thought that Kentucky would be fighting against Kentucky, that Pendleton would be fighting against Pendleton. Harry was about to reply when his attention was attracted by a heavy footstep. A third person had entered the chamber of the house, and he stood for a while in the aisle, looking curiously about him. Harry saw the man before the stranger saw him, and with an instinctive shudder he recognized Bill Skelly. There he stood, huge, black, hairy, and lowering. Two heavy pistols shone openly in his belt. End of chapter 8, part 1 Recording by Michael Packard